0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome, everybody who's watching at home. Um, Yes, we're starting a new series today. It's a a series which hopefully will lead on to other series where we home in on various other topics. But um, we felt this was a good series to lay a good basis for looking at some other difficult things in future. There's there's an old joke which goes back, as far as I can see, as far as the 1920s. uh, And it has a motorist asking a local for directions to get somewhere. And this local attempts to describe the way several times, obviously feels he's not getting it right, and in the end he gives up and he says, well, if I wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. (laughs) Oh, I'm surprised somebody laughed. I thought the humour of 1924 was kind of not really resonating today. Probably had them rolling in in the floor in in 1924. But but the point is, when it comes to being human, which is what our series is about, our starting point really is vital. In this series, we're trying to find the right starting point for tackling some very difficult and controversial issues, which we hope to look at in the future. And we, as the people of God, need to get our heads around these things, our heads and our hearts, if we want to know the flourishing life that God has for us, but also if we want to help those around us who are hurting, confused, and troubled, particularly in this key area of identity, one of the main issues of our time. So today, it's going to be a little bit different. I want to lay out some of the ways that our society is grappling with identity. I want to look at some of the effect that change is having in this area, before I then go on to set in place, hopefully, the first foundation stone of secure identity, which we'll be unpacking in later weeks. So we'll start with a question that the Spice Girls once asked? (laughs) Swing it, shake it, move it, make it. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Now, if you were going to introduce yourself to me, say I was meeting you for the very first time, and I said, who are you? Um, How would you start to answer that question? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? What's the very first thing you would say to me? Well, you might very well start with your name, Uh, Then, uh, depending on our context, um, you might start with your job or your role in life. As we get to know each other a bit more, we might talk about your age, your family relationships, your national heritage, your faith, maybe your hobbies, that kind of thing. These are all quite socially acceptable ways of starting to share who you are with someone, aren't they? Maybe if we became better friends and we went a bit deeper you might actually share more of your private self with me, your personality and character, your formative experiences in life, your dreams, your beliefs, your values, your fears. But the thing is, if I had met you 20 years ago for the first time, quite a lot of those things would be different. If I met you 20 years from now in the future how many of them would still be the same? Are all those three people the same person? Now, most of us, I think, feel instinctively that there is something about us which remains at the core through life, but do we know what that is? Identity is a slippery little sucker, as Julia Roberts said in Pretty Woman. It comes down... I think a lot to narratives. Now, psychologists don't agree on a lot when it comes to a sense of identity. Uh, But one fairly well-established idea, and I think it's a really helpful one, is that human beings tell stories to make sense of the world around us and of our lives. I don't mean made-up stories, necessarily. I just mean we weave our life into a kind of narrative, and, and all those things come together to shape who we think we are, a sense of ourselves. We have the personal story, which is what we tell ourselves about who we are, that internal tape, which we identify things about ourselves. Oh, you're so rubbish. Or, oh, you're brilliant, looking good today. Uh, All those kind of things we tell ourselves. Uh, We have a wider story, which encompasses our family history, maybe our lineage. We have a cultural story, which is the town, the country, the society that we have grown up in, which shapes us in some ways. And we also all have, at the base of this, a foundational story. It's the story about who human beings are. Our place in the universe. It's sometimes called a meta-narrative. How we got here and (coughs) who we are as a race of, of people. Now, as I've said, we build our sense of self through life by weaving together these different strands. And the picture changes over time. So our sense of self does change over time. If we lose our job, it might affect our sense of who we are. If we move into a different stage of life, our view of ourselves changes sometimes as we grow in confidence or let or we lose our confidence, it changes our sense of self doesn 't it? Our, cha- our picture of ourselves is ever changing so for example, when I was a little girl, um, I got a lot of praise for performing in public. Uh, I love to sing, I love to dance, I like to make up little plays with my friends, and obviously have the starring role in them. Um, I used to tell jokes, I used to recite poems, I used to do impressions. Frank Spencer, which dates me quite a lot, um, and you, if you laughed. Uh (laughs) In fact, the rave reviews I got from my grandparents were amazing. So I grew confident in that area of my life. But quite a shy person actually, if it came to talking to someone and being myself with them. And then, so for years, the story I told myself of who I was, that I was actually quite shy, and that my worst nightmare was to walk into a room full of strangers and have to make conversation with them. And it was just a few years ago I realized, actually, that that story about myself was now a lie. (laughs) Because I've grown more comfortable with being myself, and God's had a lot to do (laughs) with that, Um, And now I can talk to somebody without a script to follow, unlike this morning. But But you see, some of the things we weave into our story about ourselves are no longer true. In fact, some of them have never been true. Maybe because they're lies that we've been told by ourselves, or the devil, or by other people. (coughs) Sometimes with words, sometimes with actions. You know, if we are unloved, we may tell ourselves that we are unlovable. If we're constantly criticised, we may tell ourselves that we are unworthy. If we fail, we may tell ourselves we are a failure. If we are given everything we want, we may tell ourselves that we are entitled to everything we want. If society, as Paul was saying last week, says that once I've retired, I've got nothing left to give, then we may tell ourselves that we are useless. So I really think it's worth asking ourselves, right at the beginning of this series about identity, what is the narrative I have constructed of who I am? And is that a true story? Thinking wider about the society we live in and our culture. I would say we're pretty much a a culture in chaos about identity. Uh, A lot of things have contributed to that, but uh, today I'm just going to pick out two of the ones that I think are the most important. First of all, the rise of individualism. It used to be the case that society told us where we fitted in. We found our identity in what we could do for other people. So we worked to provide for our family. We stayed in an unhappy marriage because society said we should stick to the promises we've made for the sake of our children and the stability of the country. Local communities had a great deal of power to influence our behavior through approval or disapproval. Now it is very much the case that young people are brought up to believe that our first duty is to ourselves. That we owe it to ourselves to do what is right for us. How many times have you heard that? You owe it to yourself. Because there is no shared belief in God, there is also no shared sense of morality. In fact, morality really is a thing that humans just make up for themselves so the only right thing to do is what is ultimately useful to me or what I prefer to think of as right its subjective its relative the only reason to do what is right for others is because in some way it will also ultimately affect me so I pay taxes because one day I might need the National Health Service or uh, I care about the climate because my children, who I love, will be affected by that. The only reason to stay in a relationship or in a job, or maybe even a church, is because it is working for me and fulfilling me. So that's individualism. The second thing I would say, talk about is the triumph of the inner self. So, in addition to prioritizing ourselves, I think we have also changed our notion of what part of ourselves is important. (coughs) It is the inner self, or my feelings, which are the real me. So, for those people who do face a distressing and genuine conflict between the body they were born in and the feelings that they have about themselves, then it is the inner self, which is the real self, and the body, which has to be changed. None of the external realities about us define who we are anymore. And our identity is what we choose to be true about ourselves. There are no givens, and our identity is entirely what we choose to make it. Now, not everything about these changes is wrong. Uh, People very often used to be stereotyped, put into boxes, oppressed, alienated from the rest of society, and some of that has changed for the better because of these changes. But there are some very real problems we are now facing because these ideas are totally dominating our thinking. The first one I'd say is the splintering of our common humanity. If we do reject binary views of sex, gender, sexuality completely, then we are in danger of losing all sense of direction and cohesion as a society. We are struggling to know what it means to be a man or a woman. (laughs) A husband or a wife, a father or a mother. Some people are rejecting those labels completely. How do we decide how to act in those roles? How do children know what to expect of themselves and others? How does society continue to function if we all define ourselves differently and then expect others to relate to us in that way? It makes life very difficult. The second problem I see that we're facing now is the problem of authenticity. Being authentic or true to our inner selves is highly prized. But what does that mean? We've just said who we are can change quite a lot. And we're very confused. We might insist that others need to respect the true self that we have discovered within ourselves or chosen to be. But what if that true self is selfish or a bully, a paedophile? An addict? A serial killer? Are we still allowed to be true to ourselves? And we have a lot of contradictions anyway about whether we discover our true self, whether we're free to choose our identity. If we claim that our personality, our sex, our gender are completely fluid and that we have the right to choose and change our identity, then how can we also claim that we're to be respected because we were born this way and it's just the way we are? doesn't add up. And the third problem I think that we're facing a lot of is uh, the influencers. We may claim that we have a freedom to choose exactly who we are, but I don't think there is any such thing as freedom <laughs> in this regard. We are all shaped and influenced by our experiences and the culture that we grow up in. And also now, the technology of social media has hugely added to the pressures uh, of forming a sense of of identity. The fact that young people now spend many hours a day looking at filtered, augmented, unreal images of other people's perfect bodies and perfect lives means that their view of themselves is not a true picture. It's being manipulated by algorithms. It's being manipulated by cultural pressures to conform to an unrealistic and ideal. Constant comparison with unrealistic images and measuring ourselves by our number of followers or likes that we get undermines and uh, shapes young people's self-image in a very negative way at times. Instagram's own research, which they declined to share with the world for quite some time, has shown that it affects teenagers' levels of anxiety and depression significantly. So how are young people meant to know who they are and that who they are is okay? How do we protect them from finding their identity and their acceptance in destructive communities dedicated to things like anorexia and self-harm? These are all gate problems (laughs) that we are facing as a a society about identity. And it is showing itself in a very divisive identity politics. Now, if you don't know that word, you can look it up. But it basically means people having a political agenda based on one or more aspects of their identity, which have become the most important aspects of their identity. Um, and these debates are being thrashed out in our cultural uh, in our cultural battles all over the place. We see them in the news every single day. just a few examples. So we see the identity politics of race in the current contribu- controversies about statues and memorials to historical figures who we discover having been very venerated for their good works, actually the money that they've contributed to various things has been built, Um, that have been gained from investment in the slave trade, for example. This is Tobias Rustat's memorial in the Chapel of Jesus College, Cambridge. And there's a big debate at the moment as to whether they get rid of it completely, whether they move it to another space and um, explain the fact that a lot of his generous donations came from the slave trade, um, or uh, whether they just keep it and face history as it was. Uh, we see the identity politics of gender um, a lot in, in the sports world, don't we? This is uh, Leah Thomas, who competed as a man for three years for the University of Philadelphia swimming team and is now, after a year of testosterone-suppressing drugs, competing as a woman and breaking records all over the place. Um, how, do we, how do we allow her to compete? Uh, when without being putting other athletes at a disadvantage, we see the identity politics of uh, gender also in the multiplication of gender pronouns and identities. Uh, the University of Bristol recently came in for a lot of flack um, because they put out guidance to staff about using staff's preferred pronouns uh, rather than assuming that people want to be addressed as he or she, um, and they included a link to a web page which included the recommendation to address someone who identifies as a cat as Nya or Nyan. Uh, And also said that some people might wish to be addressed in writing by the use of emojis rather than letters. (laughs) It's confusing. And we see the identity politics of religion and sexuality in the latest round of the court case um, over a, a bakery in Northern Ireland owned by Christian bakers called the Ashes. Uh, who refused to produce a cake with a slogan saying, um, promote gay marriage. Now, there they have their Christian identity and their Christian beliefs, which come up against uh, the homosexual man who, it, um, who wanted to commission that cake, his identity as a gay man. Whose identity wins? Now, we can all just throw up our hands and say the world's gone mad. I think it would be better for us as Christians to listen, to understand, to try and call out what we see as harmful ideologies opposed to the truth that we see from God as we see it, in humility, understanding that we don't always understand everything well, and also loving every individual as someone that Christ has died for. These are real people, people God loves, even if we disagree wholeheartedly with them. But we are in a bit of a mess. And I believe that this mess started with a godless foundation story. Do you remember we talked at the beginning about how we build our identities around a personal, wider, cultural and foundational story? Well, the dominant foundation story in our culture at this moment is that we are here, human beings, as uh, the result of an accident of the cosmos. Uh, We are the lucky random winners of the genetic fight for survival of the fittest. In fact, Richard Dawkins describes human beings as survival machines using other survival machines. Now, if that foundational story is true, then that means there is ultimately no purpose and no meaning to life, there is no right or wrong, and no identity for us as human beings, except what we choose to invent. This foundational story tells us that the world is chaotic, and all our attempts to control our life by decluttering our wardrobe, or choosing from a plethora of identities out there, are doomed to failure. Ultimately, it doesn't matter anyway. And all the other stories we try to build on our identity are therefore based on very shaky ground, which cannot support them. Ultimately, when people believe that we are not here for any purpose, for any reason, that we have no identity other than what we choose to create, then actually they know that all the rest of their identity is trying to bolster something that is not real. There is nothing real at the core of a human being, if that is your foundational story. Which brings us finally and blessedly to the better story which we as Christians build our life upon. So let us get to the right starting point for understanding our identity. And it starts where the Bible starts in Genesis 1. The very first thing the Bible says is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we are not a random accident in a universe that couldn't care less. We are here because of the deliberate decision and action of God who created our physical reality. Genesis 1 goes on to say that the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. So this world was chaotic and meaningless, but God was present in that world. He started to bring meaning and structure to everything he had made. So it goes on to say, He separated the light from the darkness. He separated the water under the vault from the water above it. He created two great lights to govern the day and the night. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And he created vegetation, sea creatures and animals of the land and air according to their kinds. That's different verses in Genesis 1. So God separated, differentiated and made distinctions between the elements of his creation. Each thing had its place, its value and its role. This is order, this is structure. And once he'd created that order and that structure, he commanded and brought forth life, abundance, multiplication, growth. The plants bore seed, the waters teemed with living creatures. He told all living things to increase and to fill the earth. So everything in creation is part of God's given reality. And within the order that he created, they are called to grow, to flourish, and to thrive. And human beings, like everything else, are created beings. God said, let us make mankind. And that tells us that we are dependent on God for our very existence. So actually we don't have the right to determine our own nature or purpose. But that is a freeing fact. It means we don't need to scrabble around to create an identity from scratch because God has told us that he created us to be us in the way that he designed us to be. And human beings have a special place in his creation. It goes on to say that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we represent and resemble God in ways that other creatures don't. And that means that we have freedom within our created order to participate in the story of our life and work with him um, to see how his image can be polished and reflected in each one of us in our own unique way. That is abundant life. Order and life instead of chaos and emptiness is what God intends for us as human beings as well as for the rest of his creation. So in the rest of this series, we are going to unpack our foundational story of what God has ordained human beings made in his image to be. This is our foundational story, that we are remarkable creations. We have a unique status and a value conferred by God that we are reflections of his likeness and that of his son. And if we are Christians, we are being shaped and more and more into the image of his son until we reach glory. We are representatives of his loving rule and care over the world, under him. And we are relating beings who only fully bear his image in community with others. If we get that foundational story right, then we will have a strong base on which to build the rest of our identity when we become new creations in Christ. You know, the rest of the Bible tells us that we also have a cultural story because uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have a wider story. The Bible tells us that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being our cornerstone. And we have a personal story. There's so many verses we could put in here, but in John 10, verse 3, it tells us that Jesus calls his sheep by name. He knows you he knows me personally he shaped you and me personally and he loves us that is our that is so important that ultimately no matter what anybody else thinks of us no matter what anybody else says of us no matter how anybody else treats us he cares for us we have a special place in the church and in doing his will on earth as in heaven. We are loved and we will always be loved. Steve Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, um, it is said he once walked into a room to pick up a bagel and threw out a question at his employees who were gathered there. He said, who do you think is the most powerful person in the world? And uh, they were all a bit nervous about this. Are we supposed to say Steve Jobs? Um, But uh, they threw out a few suggestions, like Nelson Mandela. uh, And he said, no, you're all wrong. The most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. The storyteller sets the vision, values, and agenda of an entire generation that is to come. So what I want to leave you with is this. Do you know the best story on earth? Do you know your story? And are you willing to let God shape and define your identity? To submit to him as creator God and let him him reveal who he's made you to be? Are you willing to let go of identities like victim, failure, weak, unacceptable, ugly, stupid, in control, self-sufficient. Are you willing to let God be God in saying who you are? And are you willing to tell your story to a world that doesn't know what it can be? Let's get our starting point right and let's let God be God.